I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Back in March 2022, I was delighted to be asked by ViewSonic to give a talk on their stand about podcasting and education. Now, you can watch that on their YouTube channel. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to this. And I also did a podcast, Live from Bet 2022, which I'll also put a link in as well, where I spoke to five or six companies and talked about education as we are today. Now, while I was on the ViewSonic stand, I had the real privilege of being able to listen to Professor Stephen Heppel, who's my guest today, talking about CO2 in the classroom. Now, Stephen's eye on the horizon, feet on the ground approach, coupled with a vast portfolio of effective large-scale projects over three decades, has established him internationally as a wide and fondly regarded leader in the fields of learning, new media and technology. He was a school teacher for more than a decade and has been a professor since 1989. Stephen has worked and is working with learner-led projects, with governments around the world, with international agencies, Fortune 500 companies, with schools and communities, and with many influential trusts and organisations. Stephen's had a fast career and he explains exactly that as we start our conversation. But his talk at BET was inspiring and just really opened my eyes and just reminded me that education is so much about the environment, the culture and the community of what we do above and beyond anything else. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. It's such an important one, I believe, with Professor Stephen Heppel. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. I had the, the privilege of, of listening to your conversation on the ViewSonic stand at BET, and I'd, I'd just been chatting with them earlier in that morning talking about podcasting and education. So this is going to be a very interesting conversation for so many people, and so much of it and the things that you cover just made so much sense and just made me think, it's not rocket science, some of this stuff, even though it can be rocket science. But uh, anyway, so thanks so much for being here. Yeah, I like to think it's um, common sense with data, you know. Yes, absolutely. Something to, <laughs> something to back it all we, up, yeah. We knew that, and here's the numbers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, so for those people that um, haven't come across you before, and I know that's not very many, bearing in mind the millions of people that visit your website and, and listen to all the things that you do, just give them a, a brief sort of synopsis of that kind of sort of tech starting background in the, your professional career through to all the wonderful projects you're currently doing. Well, we could blow the whole hour, you know, just on that. <laughs> yeah. But the short version, I'm quite old. I started teaching in the 70s and there was a professor in the uh, 1988 sponsored by Apple, Steve Jobs, nice bloke. I don't recognise the Steve Jobs in the movie. He was a lovely, warm, interested fellow, really. Um, and uh, spent a lot of time looking at how we can make learning better with technology and with um, with learning environments, with you know, and I find myself really, um, you know, what I often describe as the death of education and the dawn of learning. And here we go. You know, it's a, it's a pretty exciting time. So, you know, I've lived through the 
CD-ROM era, you know, multimedia, um, being able to connect up your BBC B in a phone box, you know, all that sort of stuff. And <laughs> along came the internet and CD-ROM, as I was briefly the largest producer of CD-ROM in Europe, because I think I've been knocking up about 40,000 a year. Nobody else was making them, you know. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, suddenly the world is harnessing technology to make learning better and... I'm having the time of my life, to be honest. You know, I can't imagine ever stopping. <laughs> Fantastic. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about what you spoke about at Beck, because that really caught my attention in terms of you're talking about C2O and, and the learning environment. And, and like I said at the beginning, that just made so much sense in terms of so much of what we think has to go on in education is about what we're told and we just don't have the fundamentals like the amount of oxygen we need or, or the amount of light we need so let, let's start let's start there and see where we go so let's start there. i mean it's um you know and I'm, I'm a huge fan of teachers and a huge fan of children you know and i want them to be their very best selves and um i found myself some way back being asked by elite sports to help them with their learning you know, the England rugby squad um, with Eddie, um, the British Olympic team, some of them, not all of them, and so on. Um, and, you know, very quickly I learned from them that they left no stone unturned. You know, if you think about the Team GB at Atlanta, we won one gold medal. And that was for rowing, which is, you know, hardly mainstream stuff, and that was only by about nine inches, you know. Um and we were actually quite good as a nation at sitting down sports, you know, <laughs> cycling, rowing, sailing, Formula One. If you get to sit down, we were top nation, <laughs> but um, we weren't very good at anything else. And the reason was we were doing it formulaically, you know, um, Brendan Foster, brilliant runner, you know, knew exactly what to do and how to do it, but everybody else knew what he knew. And so when the start gun went, you know, they could surprise him, but he couldn't surprise them. And, Paul Bloke was constantly coming third and fourth instead of the triumphs he should have had. You know, he was fabulous. So I think people tore up the the model. And of course, a lot of athletics was taught by um, people who come out of the services. And, you know, they were kind of, you know, 400 press-ups and, you know, do this or do that was all, which they don't do that anymore either, by the way. You know. And uh, so once they tore that up, they started looking at, you know, what Dave Brailsford and the cycling folk called the aggregation of marginal gains. Let's look at every damn detail. And when you look at the classroom, I mean, there's a lot of kind of arguing about what makes good learning in Twitter. You know, people circle their wagons and defend their silent corridors or whatever, you know. Kind of none of that really matters. All schools are different. All children are different. The teacher will tell you on a windy day that schools are a different place to on a calm day. But... The constants in all this is your cognitive processes, what happens in your brain. And we know that when we started measuring those classrooms, the figures were horrendous. Um, you know, as I was measuring an exam room, I think, about seven years ago, and we found CO2 levels over 5,000 parts per million by the end of the exam. Well, no kid can concentrate in those conditions. One side of the room is far darker than the other side, and both of them were too dark to be properly alert. I mean, teachers listening to this will know when, when you're invigilating an exam, you've only been in there 20 minutes, you start nodding off, you know, and you have to stand up and walk around the room, because as you stand up, your head 
comes up out of the CO2 and you're out of the swimming pool and then the kids are all drowning in their own emissions and you're sort of trying to stay awake. And it's just ghastly. And we know that um, CO2 should be below a 1,000 parts per million. But even at a 1,000, you're starting to ebb away a bit. We know the light should be above 500 lux. You folks listen to this, you have to go and download a free light meter on your phone and go and test out your your classroom. But there's a huge inequity in all this. We were um, we were busy in a little tiny school down the road. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be building schools all around the world, just back from Colombia, a new school and building, just, just open one in Riyadh, you know, and they're all fabulous places. But as it happens, during COVID, I was working just down the road in um, Fingering Ho. It's one of those towns that appears in um, web websites of, of rude words in England. You know, the <laughs> Americans all think Fingering Ho is the most most um, profoundly rude word, but it's a lovely little town. I love it. And we were working with the kids in the little coastal school, really, and you know, one form entry. And we kind of went in and measured the with the kids, I mean, you have to do this with the children because, you know, you get agency bag, you get metacognition, you get reflective practice, and that's a secret weapon anyway, just asking the kids, how can we do it better? But I'd sort of said to the kids in, this was in May, the year before we were going to do the project academic year, and I said, so who are the kids in the class who were kind of slipping away a bit, coming up to lunch, you know, <laughs> and sort of not quite as on the ball as they might be? And they all pointed to these these boys in the corner. The boys in the corner pointed to themselves, you know. That, yeah, it's us, you know, guilty as named, you know. And I said, who are the kids who are, you know, at the end of the day still trying to finish off stuff and hang on, mum, you know, just they're just going to finish this and don't want to stop. They pointed to a mixed group over by the window. Of course, the window was broken, so fresh air was coming in there, good light from the window. It was a cool corner of the room. The oxygen levels were engagingly high. And so I got them to swap over, you know, and there was a lovely moment about two o'clock in the afternoon when one of the girls from the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed window bunch, who's now in the naughty boy corner, she called me over and she said, um, I can feel myself going over to the dark side, you know, which <laughs> is a wonderful, a wonderful phrase. And indeed it was in every way the dark side, you know. So we, you know, we did everything to the room. We painted the walls with high... Um, I reflect to high refraction paint, Dulux light and space. If you want to go and buy it in your local store, you know um, we put in um, LED lights. None of those old flickering tubes. We made sure they were at a Kelvin value of um, five and a half thousand or better, so pure white light. Um, none of your kind of warm greens, yellows, and blues, and just sends you to sleep. You know, just bright stuff. These days, you could stick a kid's head in a functional MRI scanner and change the lights and watch what's happening in their brain, you know. So we did that. We zoned the classroom. So there was a... I mean, gosh, you still need direct instruction. There's a time when your teacher needs to tell you stuff. Knowledge still flipping matters, you know. But there's also times when you need to get your head down and do some private work and times when you want to collaborate with two or three others and times when you want to rehearse your presentation to the class and say, wow, look what we've learned. And so, you know, you zone the classroom and, of course, they have to move. They have a carousel of activities during the afternoon and movement is another thing that when your body... I mean, it's just it's common sense, as you said. When your body moves, your heart pumps. 
the blood goes around your body, the oxygen gets to your brain. If you sit kids on a traditional 90 degree chair, school chairs, you know, that have been designed with, with always with input from the caretaker, because the caretaker says, mate, I've got to be able to stack them. <laughs> so, never mind their learning, you know, I've got to be able to stack them. And so they're always, you know, dead upright, 90 degree chairs. And if you watch children sitting on them, they always slump back, typically at about 130 degrees. They stretch their legs, move their bottom forward on the seat and roll back. And some teachers say to them, don't slouch. Actually, it's just the opposite. You should encourage them to slouch because of those angles. Their body knows that's the best angle for them to be focused, you know, and the, the blood goes around the heads a little bit better. Wobbly chairs, stools, standing desks, you know, anyway. So all this stuff all adds up, you know, and, um, you know, suddenly you start seeing, I mean, it's incredible numbers. You know, just temperature, you look at 18 to 21 degrees is optimal temperature for learning. Every degree above 21, your mass performance, and dead easy to measure mass performance, because like there it is, you know, <laughs> it's a bit harder to measure creativity if they're building a you know, a 3D model of Dante's Inferno or whatever. I'm not quite sure what's 90% of what's 87, you know, but with maths is pretty easy. Their mass performance drops by, by 23 degrees. It's about 1.8% worse than it was at 21. And, uh, and so on, you know, it's really, really simple, all this stuff. So when you add it all up, then, of course, damn, you know, the things we knew, you walk into a brand new classroom, you can smell the newness, you can smell the carpet tiles. Well, it turns out that those carpet tiles with their fibres glued onto a rubber base are emitting volatile organic compounds. And that's the smell you get, you know. It's, um, and actually, it's quite damaging to your cognitive processes. So, And that doesn't go away for about five years. And the warmer the classroom gets, the worse it gets. And then... Along comes COVID, you know, we were seeing TVOCs, the total volatile organic compound. We were seeing those numbers coming up like a meteor, you know, and we thought, what the bleep's going on here? We'd only seen that before. We had a school where it was really high just before lunch. We couldn't work out what it was, but it turned out to be boys, the secondary school, boys spraying themselves with links in the hope of becoming more desirable for the girls, you know. Over <laughs> well, lunchtime. Yeah, over lunchtime. The girls had opted for the radical solution of washing in the morning, but the boys just gave themselves a blast of Lynx, Lynx Desiro or whatever it was called, you know, and, you know, because the TV series were through the roof. And um, But what it was, what, what was happening in all the schools was COVID. You know, people were buying in industrial strength cleaners to protect the children. I mean, good news, you could lick your desk, it was so clean. Bad news, the flipping cleaners had brainwashed you, you know. So, I mean, literally, in every sense. So, it's a jolly complicated thing, all this. But the thing here is just to give the kids the numbers and say, here you go. I've just come back from Colombia. So, we're talking about opening a school for the indigenous kids on the banks of the, um, the Amazon rainforest, you know, where, by the way, the TVOCs are very low. The oxygen is very good. But Bad news, they've got anacondas, you know, it's not, it's not all good, you know. Oh, this is good for my brain, but hang on, I've been swallowed by a snake, you know. <laughs> I, think, I think the amazing thing about that is, like you said, you know, every school is different, every group of children is different, and so 
I guess the, the most important thing or, or the biggest takeaway I could think of that is the fact that you just have to think and you just have to be aware, don't you? And and so yeah. part of it is like having this conversation and, and sharing it around. But, you know, the windows and doors. And, and, and I think one of the things that struck me from when I was listening to it, Bet, was the idea of having windows open is great, except you've got no no through draw. So therefore, it's still not as good as it could be. And yeah, things like showing, that people don't realise, you know. I was showing a graph at Bet and um, listeners can imagine this. You know, the, the classroom, these are four classrooms. And the great thing is, we you know we're capturing data. I'm sitting on about five and a half million hours of data here. You know, so quite a lot of stuff. And um, we know that when you come in and leave the doors and windows shut, oh, it's a bit cold this morning. You know, blah blah blah. The kids breathe. I mean, hopefully they breathe. You know, very quickly, CO two levels go up. And I mean, within within thirty minutes, the classroom with with all with everything shut is above. You know, the the kind of um, not the optimal levels, but it's above the levels at which you can be your best self. You know, you start to deteriorate straight away. I mean, kids are on sharp form for registration. You know, hey, Paul, yes, sir. You know, that's, that was me at my best, really. It all slips away, you know. When you open the windows, of course, if you haven't got um, air circulation, CO2 is a heavy gas. It settles to the bottom half of the club, literally like a swimming pool. And, you know, we, we could see, I think, on the graphs of the the CO2 was better, but it was still damaging. And it was only when you open the door and get those drafts that you you really do start to get the um you know the the the, the air change that you need. I mean interestingly, you know, our forefathers um knew about all this stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, I go into homes in Australia, for example. The homes built a hundred years ago had verandas to shade out the direct sun, but to allow to open the windows, they had a warm side and a cold side. I'm a professor in UCJC in Madrid these days, um, and uh, you know the, the Spanish knew how to build, you know, schools and houses that cope really well because one side's hot, one side's cold. You open both the windows, you get a really quite profound draft blowing through. But of course, somewhere between those wise old ancestors building those schools and now. Somebody came along, Bill Clark, we think we should put the children in boxes, so let's build the walls, and then the air wouldn't circulate. And then in the 60s, they said, oh, let's have a modern building with a flat roof and no veranda at all. So you're now in a flipping greenhouse, so you've got one side of the room, the kids are melting, the other side, they're not, you know. And it, But there's an equity thing here. You know, if you're doing your exam and you're on the side that's too hot or the CO2's too high or... The TVOCs are too fetid, you know, or the, you know, you're going to do worse than a kid on the other side of the room. So all this kind of nonsense about exams being a flare, a fair playing field, you know, so it would be like doing the steeplechase in the Olympics where the inside lane is on marshland and the outside is on, you know, decent, decent tartan track. Just not fair. And, you know, I think when we start looking at the variables... But I'll tell you what, there's another thing that's, that's even more profound here. The world we're in is full of surprises. You know, not many people were expecting COVID, Ukraine, grain crisis, climate catastrophe. I mean, all those things. Um, nobody was expecting much of that. Although I would say I wrote to the Department of Education in 2016 and warned them and said, I think a pandemic would be a real problem. We need a plan B. And they wrote back, I treasure the mail, and said, 
we don't see the danger. (laughs) (laughs) Pulling my told you so hat on doesn't really help. But there will be more surprises. I mean, they're going to keep coming thick and fast. Now, if all our schools are the same, and they all follow the same protocols, the same rule books, the same, you know, kids go into the exam room saying, I hope there's no surprise on the exam paper. And teachers say, I hope I've anticipated everything and think that that's going to prepare them for a world full of surprises where we can anticipate nothing. So, you know, of course we need a variety of schools because, you know, for that problem we need kids who are in that school and for this problem we need kids who are in this sort of school. And the more variety we have, the absolute better. So I'm just shutting the window here because here we are. Here we are in uh, May and it's torrential rain here and thunderstorms, you know, so... I wasn't expecting that because I've been painting a boat earlier today. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, yeah, that's all sort of interesting, you know, and, you know, we need that diversity really. And without the diversity, we're, we're stuffed, you know. And I think, I think the sense of being able to see your situation is your your extra 10%, as it were, or your, or your flair. You know, you don't have to be the same as any, as everyone else. And you don't even have to be better than everyone else. You just have to be you. Like you said, you know, your best self. Um, and that's completely based on your surroundings, your upbringing, your knowledge, your understanding that this is going to change and morph depending on the circumstances you go in. I mean, you've spoken about, you know, where you're working around the world in different situations, you know, how you go about learning new things and meeting new people and, and what you're passionate about. And this is all a million miles away, like you said, from the fact that you think you've done everything you can do and you end up finding yourself in the wrong part of the exam hall, not being able to breathe and concentrate and the light's not very good. <laughs> and, and, that, and and that's what it's all about. I mean, it's just so far removed, isn't it? Yes, I mean, it's sort of, um, it's kind of interesting. We did a big survey back in the 1990s. Nice thing about being old is you can go back, you know, oh, look at what we did, you know. And we surveyed a um, thousand people twice, so it's, 2,000 people, not the biggest survey, but big enough. And we said to them, tell us about your best learning experience. And, of course, it was a loosely constructivist model of learning. They learned with others. They did things. They had what I think the literature these days would call an ipsative referencing of their learning. They they felt themselves moving forward, never mind normative. I don't care what they're doing in Singapore. You know, do I feel like I've learned to move forward? But all of them had two really interesting things. They had always an adult in there, you know, a coach, a parent, but mostly a teacher, sometimes a choir person or whatever, you know. And those people were passionate to the point of eccentricity. They remembered, and people listening to this, they will remember their crazy teachers, you know, the... The, 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 the person who taught me English literature was passionate about metaphysical poetry, and I still am. You know, the person who taught me metalwork had been a, been a fighter pilot in the war, was then working for the Cooper Car Company building race cars, and how he ended up teaching me metalwork, I don't know, but <laughs> I've still got a workshop here with a lathe and a pillar drill, you know, and, and I make stuff for my boat, and... Every time I go to put a put something in the chuck of my lathe, I can hear him saying, you know, take the take the chuck key out or it's gonna whiz off and go in your eye. I mean, 
those are the people we remember. I just get depressed when I see someone, especially some of the mats. I mean, I like some of the mats. I think some of them are fabulous, but they seem to go for this sort of anodyne approach. All the teachers are supposed to be the same. They need more dress coats. Dear God, um, what are they thinking? You want your teachers to be eccentric. Not, Not crazy, but crazy about their subject. You know, mad of, what did you do in the holidays, sir? I went to look and see if terminal moraines were real. You know, that's <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, good. Where did you go? Well, dot, 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 you know. You know, and the lessons, you remember the ones where they strayed off the curriculum and, you know, started telling you about their time in the Antarctic or whatever, you know. So, you know, we need the eccentricity and, dare I say, we need the space because, you know, if the curriculum is too nailed down, they haven't got room to be eccentric. You know, and then that's, and that's a shame. When I look around the world, interestingly enough, I'd, you know, I'd opened a school in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh. And, um, you know, in a lot of the Saudi schools, traditionally people sit in rows and face the front. And we'll maybe come back to that in a minute. But I found a maths teacher who could see that that wasn't the best way for his kids in his context, in his school, to learn. So he'd went to a local hotel, got, you know, those folding tables you have for, for weddings that are made out of you know, chipboard, and you put a, they put a tablecloth. Only when you look underneath the table, you realize he got a set of those. You know, and he had the kid, no, no chairs. So the kids all working, standing. I mean, you've never seen more engaged children. It was just fabulous, and he was, you know, mad as a box of frogs. But I mean, the, the results he was getting were spectacular. The kids arrived early because he was so passionate about the stuff. You know, that's what we need. We need that. We do. And and do you think there's something about about the experience of, of of teachers now and like you said i mean of course this is a generational thing you know you know you were talking about some people who've got sort of previous lives you know whether that's enforced or or directed in terms of of that kind of thing they're much more um have the ability to talk about themselves because that's a more integral part of what they are rather than having gone to school then studied and then started working in school and they're sort of like i said they're sort of a dress code but also a way of being in that particular scenario rather than that kind of oh this is me and let's let's go with it because i think that two-way conversation like you said also then opens up the conversation about the children's background and their interests and that kind of thing and that's where you get the real engagement isn't it yes i mean i I, i'm a huge fan of today's teachers my my middle daughter is a head teacher of primary school down on the south coast which has you know leapt out of um you know, pretty dire off straight up to to being a good school in four years. And they the teachers are just unbelievable. The, the fun they have, the dressing up they do, the you know, the um, the engagement of the trust in the children. It's all about trusting the kids in the end and knowing when to stop trusting them as well. Because they're still kids when all said and done, you know. That, I mean, I know you don't necessarily have to have been a fighter pilot in a Spitfire <laughs> before you started. But the question I always used to ask when I was interviewing for new appointments when I was in schools was, what do you do in the holidays? You know, and there's a there's a real insight there into, you know, where people's passions are. And I think at the moment, what do you do in the holidays? A lot of teachers are just collapse exhausted for the first two weeks because, you know, has, I've never seen teachers have to work so hard as they do now. And the, the contrast, let me say, between how hard they're working and how hard MPs are working you know, it takes, takes your breath away, really. I mean, there are some hard-working MPs, too. 
but not so many. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. <laughs> and having having sort of brought up that kind of government <laughs> um, idea, shall we say? Um, you know, and I know you've worked with lots of people like that and had lots of conversations with these sorts of things. So from from all of the things that you know, and not just based on practical experience, you know, like I said, in terms of data, in terms of being able to really sort of demonstrate, you know. Th- a school could look like this, you know, this is how it works here, or this is how it works in a different part of the world, or whatever it happens to be, and here's the data to back it up. What's the what's the feeling of, of how you think things may change or could change um, or not change but, but based on that kind of interaction? Yeah, well, let me answer that globally and then nationally, because I think um, glo- the global answer is different to the England answer, and indeed England answer is different to the Wales and Scotland answer, and I think... Um, England's a bit of an outlier at the moment in terms of what we're doing. Globally, is really interesting. And I'll take you back to COVID, really, first of all. I mean, with COVID, kids had a, an interesting time. Uh, in Peru, for example, just opening a school in Lima in Peru, um, which is fabulous, by the way. It's, it's more outdoor than it is indoor. It's the most amazing place, you know. But those kids were locked in their homes for six months, Never mind, not going to school, weren't allowed out of doors. So imagine you've got a family of six in a one-bedroom flat with no balcony and you're trapped in there for six months, you know. And and yet, children responded to that remarkably in most of the world. Now, some kids had the most torrid time. You know, if you're trapped at home with an abusive parent, an abusing parent, it's the last place you want to be. And for some kids... School is their safe place, you know, those those kids who hug your leg and call your dad by mistake and then giggle, you know, because you know you're so much a part of their stability. But they're not they're not all the kids by any means, and for most most of the others. For most of the others I think they, they did really interesting things. And I was a bit depressed by the way that our politicians, without looking at any evidence, just started talking about the the COVID kids and the lockdown generation and BBC's had some ludicrous thing of saying, you know, this generation of children will they'll lose £180,000 of income before they get to retire. Not that anyone's ever going to retire anyway, but I mean, it was all nonsense. And I kind of thought back to the last time we had a golden generation of children who were massively disrupted, which was before my time was the wartime generation and I remember um, Stan Owens had a PhD student who was a lovely bloke and um, he was evacuated during the war and he went to school every day for nearly a fortnight with a label on his coat saying Stan Owens, you know, <laughs> age, I don't know, nine or whatever he was and, uh, you know, and his, his baby sister had the same thing and they had one bag and you were allowed one toy, one pair of pyjamas, a change of pants, and I think that was about it, you know, in your bag, and a book. And then you know, they knew they were going to be evacuated because of the bombing. You know, he was living just east of London, really. And then suddenly they went in on a Friday, and they said, right, get in the bus, you're going to Wales. And off he went for 18 months. He didn't see his mum or his dad, and he was, he was, the, he was the big boy looking after his little sister. And... Um, you know, he went on to be chief engineer for Ford's research at Dunton. And if you think about that generation of John Lennon, Vivian Westwood, and 
you know, so many of them that, that had that incredibly disrupted childhood. You know, Clive Sinclair, Colin Chapman, you know, <laughs> so many, I mean, women and men, you know. Uh, you know, they were, they went on to rebuild you know, modern Europe. And then we went through a stage, really, of, um, you know, people having very stable schooling and very stable curriculum, a timetable and a seating plan and all the other things, <laughs> all those certainties in life, you know. And now we've got a generation of politicians who struggle to cope with change, you know, faced with COVID, the first thing they did was put all the chairs back in rows and make all the kids face the front. Nobody knows why. I mean, that was just, oh, help. <laughs> Let's do it like when I was at school. You know. we, by the way, just for people listening, we're just, we're just modelling airflows around different classroom layouts to see what happens with either face the front or fours facing each other or clusters or zones. I think our hunches at this point, having looked at some of the data, did of the kids all sit in a row because the the breath the um the aerosol the covid bearing aerosol from their breath all heads in the same direction it's like a like a stream so i think classrooms where the kids all sit and face the front um probably are going to get more ill teachers and that was certainly what we saw wasn't it in covid suddenly a great swathe of teachers went down because all the kids were talking at them you know um so you know, as he said at the beginning, when we start looking at the data, you know, oh yeah, that does seem a bit silly, doesn't it? <laughs> Damn, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like, I mean, not putting lids on the toilets, you know, when you, here's a good one for listeners, this will cheer folk up. I mean, when you, when you flush a toilet, the plume of aerosol from the toilet bowl goes about five metres and carries um, faecal matter and also, of course, carries infectious matter. So, Kids flushing a toilet in the school toilets. The plume of COVID-bearing aerosols go about five metres. But if you're doing that, if you're at home in your bathroom, tell your kids this, they'll love it. When you flush the toilet in the bathroom, if you don't shut the lid, you will have faecal matter on your toothbrush because it's going to easily reach that far. So you're cleaning your teeth with poo on your toothbrush, you know. <laughs> and once kids realise that, they go... Yeah, I think we probably ought to shut the lids, don't you? <laughs> if you say, the rule here is we will always shut the lids, and go, yeah, stop that, mate. But when we say, do you want poo behind your ears? They go, no, no, we'll shut the lids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's about engaging them with the, with the science and with the data and with the facts. Of course it is. And it, I mean, it's, it's like I said, as, as soon as it becomes part of your life and your learning, then it feels so different, does it, than just, well, that's doing what it, I'm told to do, you know. That's when it got to be really interesting because the COVID kids kind of learning escaped from the boxes we'd put it in, escaped from the schools and the curriculum. And I think people trying to run, you know, a kind of analogue version of face-to-face -face learning online. Good morning, it's 11.30. I'm your chemistry teacher, Mr Smith. Put that down, you know. I mean, how the hell is that ever going to work? You know, we've known... Since the eighties, if you want to do good online learning, you you know you spread out the time. You have little plenary moments. You have touch points when people could come together. You you know you, you don't have very much synchronous stuff because if you got synchronous stuff, kids with not much money. There's three of them in the house. They're all supposed to log on at eleven thirty. How the hell is that going to happen? There's only one laptop and not enough bandwidth. So you you spread it out, and then everybody can be part of it. And 
you know, with a huge equity thing. I'm typically the private schools in in England, you know, did the kind of synchronous lessons, and they're, they're about the only people who can make it work because everybody had their own laptop at home, and the the butler probably brought the modem in, polished it, you know, sort of thing. So, but for the rest, you know, it was never going to work. Now, what happened was, I was so dismayed by this COVID kids nonsense of the and the kids. I mean, of course. Kids were having a crisis of mental health because every time they turned the telly on, there was some clown telling them they were going to be the lost generation. Well, anybody would have a mental wobble at that point. You know, it's um, it's crazy. So we just set up, you can go there yourself, pebble.net slash golden. It's pretty simple. H-E-P-P-E-L-L for Heppel, um, dot net slash golden. And then there's a, there's a certificate generator that says, okay, what did you do? during COVID, and we're sitting on, I mean, tens of thousands of, I think probably now hundreds of thousands of responses to kids saying, hey, here's what we did. Well, I mean, even the word search, even the, you know, even the word uh, cloud, you know, looks pretty, the wordle looks pretty impressive, but I can summarise in three categories what the kids did. Number one, they went for depth, not breadth. Not one kid said, hey, good news, I've covered the whole curriculum. I've done really well, you know. I don't want, I wonder why. You know. <laughs> they didn't care about depth, but they really wanted to get into They didn't care about breadth, but they really wanted to get into depth. Secondly, they did it with others. You know, here, with my, my granddaughters live with me. They're eight and six now, so you can do the maths on where they were at the beginning of COVID. And we were, um, I think we kind of got into the gunpowder plot, so we made quite a lot of gunpowder, to be honest, and probably too much, but there's a lot of seagulls nearby, so plenty of seagull and pigeon poo, so we could make saltpeter, and I'll tell you what, it went really well, you know, so that sort of got us into rockets, which got us into space, and, you know, sending messages to the space station, and they, you know, at the six and four, as they were, they were hugely into space, and, and then it, I'm blowing things up, you know, in a rather jolly way, you know, and um, and of course they did it with me and they did it with each other and they did it with some of their friends and they put a few videos up on their class website. Here's us blowing up, whatever, you know. And the other kids got excited and had a go. And thirdly, they were connected with their learning. You know, they, you know, they, they, um, they might have been doing what they were supposed to be doing in their schoolwork, but there was a, there was a phone or something on the desk with them and there was a, you know, another one of their classmates, or with my other granddaughter who doesn't live with me. She's a very competitive sailor, and you know, just turned a teenager. You know, she was, I mean, her working group were her sailing friends. She's in the National Sailing Squad, so the kids she worked with online were the kids she sails with, nothing to do with the school group. So they were connected, but they weren't connected with the box we'd put them in. They were connected with the people regardless of age and if I if I said okay what's what's learning going to look like in the future pretty blinking obvious you know there's going to be kids pursuing deep knowledge and deep understanding and depth they're going to be doing it together and doing it with others and then you start to realize that the others actually are everybody so in Spain we were kind of pursuing this because I like to try these things out with that scale you know and we run with a group, the SEK group in Spain. We've got quite a lot of schools so um, around the world. 
So I said to all our parents, hey, here's eight and a half thousand courses. We use Coursera's catalogue, you know. And so research project we're doing with Coursera, it's all a lighthouse project with it. Here's all these, what would you like to do? And, um, I mean, you know, people listening, I think, probably they wanted to learn how to be better parents, you know. What do I do with the naughties? Maybe they want to learn about teaching reading with phonics. No, they didn't. They've gone off and said, I really want to know about blockchain, or I've always wanted to program, even though I'm a pianist, you know, or, you know, I really want to learn. They, they went off to extend themselves to be their very best selves. And it turns out everybody on the planet wants to be their best selves. You're talking to kids in Yemen. So bombs dropping through the school roof, you know. They still want to be astronauts and dogs. They want to be their best selves. And everybody does. So future learning is everybody. Everybody connected. Everybody going for depth. Pretty blinking obvious, you know. And and, and then, of course, dear old England, we put them back in school and say, right, that's enough of depth. <laughs> Let's get back to breath, you know. We used to run um, Not School, which is a fabulous, um, it's a school, a virtual school for kids who've been excluded from school by behaviour, mostly circumstances, sometimes health, occasionally. And the kids used to say, with a wry smile, you know, trouble with school, I wouldn't try and do their accent, you know. The trouble with school is when you're crap at something, they make you do more of it. <laughs> and school, we're full of crazy stuff, you know. Well, one of my favourite crazy things is expecting a thousand teenagers to be simultaneously hungry. Well, I mean, how's that? If people here with two teenagers in the house, you can't get them both to be hungry at the same time for dinner. How are we going to get a thousand to be doing it for lunch? You know, what nonsense. Well, we do it because it's convenient to us. We don't do it because it's best for the children. And then we start looking at the film. Well, hang on a minute. Going back to those sporting superstars, they know what to... I mean, I'll tell you what, right now, Real Madrid team and the Liverpool team are having a very controlled diet. We're coming out, I don't know when people are listening to this, but we're coming up to the Champions League um, playoff, you know. And remember that Liverpool have got, by the way, a head of data who has a PhD in theoretical physics. He's got 11 full-time data specialists working with him that's the same number as people on the pitch and they know exactly what to eat <clears throat> so back to schools and we got sod all data people don't even know you know if i mean that, that silly example would be when i change the layout of my classroom kids arrive earlier we know that because they want to have more choice if you've got standing seats and comfy seats and wobbly chairs <coughs> they will arrive early to get best seats there's no beam in the doorway to tell you you know, where's the feedback as a teacher? I've rearranged my classroom. <coughs> where's, we know breakfast helps, but what's the best breakfast, you know? So we've been doing that work, as you know, for some years of looking at brain food. And uh, again, it's all the blinking obvious stuff. You know, it's it's fresh salmon rather than farmed salmon. It's olive oil. It's um, kimchi. It's turmeric. You know, it's a whole lot of stuff that people um, use in their everyday diet, rich or poor. And it turns out it works for their brains as well. <coughs> so, you know, there we are. And the worst thing, you know, is a can of Red Bull. It'd actually be 
be better to hit him around the head with a shovel probably before the exam. Because, <laughs> you know, Red Bull is great at what it does. It doesn't get you ready for the exam because the caffeine is going to hurt your short-term memory real quick. And, I mean, it does... You can, well, you can, one, you can understand why so many children are disenchanted with what they do, to say the least, isn't it? It's because it's like the people that are telling me to do this are the people that I'm supposed to look up to they're my elders i'm being told how to do this and without them even being able to acknowledge it verbally inherently they know this isn't how my body works what i need i know it's not working for me it it, it needs to be different and like i said even with those covid examples of you know my kids were the same you know the connectivity and and the support networks they had and and i remember my daughter she was like oh it's great enough to get up for that hour earlier if only i could get up an hour later every single day it would be fantastic you know the small things which they just really relate to yeah no absolutely and and um as we said right at the beginning common sense with with data i mean the kind of interesting then looking at um politicians around the world so you know and i've worked on you know not a political animal in terms of my support of politicians. I worked with Ken Baker, I think probably Ian Taylor was Conservatives, the best minister I've ever worked with in terms of, you know, what he gave us in terms of autonomy and opportunity. And then Charlie Clark was fantastic, you know, as a he supported those not school children, you know, above all else, you know. So but as I look around the world, I see other people's ministers saying, Well that was then and this is now. And, you know, I'm, I'm working on policy in the Philippines and in Indonesia, Vietnam and Cambodia, and all of them are saying, you know what? I mean, kids aren't going to be going to school five days a week. And when we asked a whole lot of kids in Scotland, funnily enough, how many days a week do you think you need to go to school to be part of the community, to feel membership, to feel you've got skin in the game, to have your bestie waiting for you at the gate, you know? And the average response from kids was two. Two days a week would be enough. And, you know, funnily enough, if you look at people who are working from home, they say, well, I might need to pop into the office, but never going to need to go in more than a couple of days a week, if that. You know, so we've all got that number in our head now. And those those countries I mentioned, and certainly the north of South America as well, and some of the other hotspots in learning around the world are saying... Let's, let's do it. Let's build that nomadic classroom where kids are there or they're not there. The savings are colossal. You know, if you build a school for 1,500 kids, you've only got to build 800 places. Look at the money you've got left to pay teachers and to buy resources and to do all those other things, you know. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just finding the brave ministers around the world now are not local. And that's a shame. I mean, I hope we'll pick up again. You know, well, we we we, well, we we seem to like to be able to compare ourselves to everyone else. So I guess that the guiding light with that is the fact that if there's someone somewhere, someone somewhere else doing great things, which starts to show real promise, then maybe we'll we'll go on their coattails and <laughs> and and it will change by, well, by hook tr- or by crook. It's a tricky old thing, isn't it? Because um, what the hell do you measure? Um, you know, we we know that if you measure children's undergraduate degrees you know there are plenty of Carol Vordermans with third class honours emerged that do brilliantly well and um, it's not a great predictor of economic and entrepreneurial success or parenting success when I started teaching 
Schools were measured by the number of children that were entered for the exam. Curiously not whether the kids passed or not. So every school had classes of kids who were registered for something that had no hope of passing, but they had to be registered for the school score, you know. Well, we measure other things today. We measure, you know, SAT scores or GCSE, but none of them are actually, they're only placeholders for the thing that we really need to know, which is do kids leave school with a passion for learning, with, with deep knowledge that they can call on and use? Because no good. It's not the 60s. You don't emerge, hey, well, let's sit up a tree and dream physics. I mean, you've got to know stuff, you know. But do, do they leave with those things? And there's a really interesting OECD graph, which I'm sorry for listeners, I can't whip up in front of you, but you can imagine it because it's a trend line. And it's a trend line that compares children's interest in science beyond school with their science curriculum scores. And top nation in the science curriculum scores is Finland. Flipping brilliant. Kids emerge knowing all the science there is to learn. But nobody listening to this has got a Nokia phone because as they, as they lock down the science curriculum, they turn kids off science with a vengeance. And the Finnish kids are probably the least likely to leave school with a passion for science. On the other hand, you know, if I look at um, Brazil and Chile and some of the South American sites, the kids don't know a lot of science, to be honest, but they're passionate for it. And they've all got, you know, vigorous, um, you know, illegal chemical industries, one sort or another. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, the, the, one who's, the one who's up in the quadrant of, OK, who's good at it and loving it, it's probably only really Hong Kong floating away up there in space. We do very poorly. We don't. You're not particularly good at science knowledge and our kids are not passionate enough to want to do science when they leave school. But enough of them are that we've still got some stunning domestic science, you know, teams running. And, um, you know, they're pretty fab, but we're going to need a lot of those if we can. I mean, blimey, we just got COVID nailed and here comes monkeypox or whatever, you know, I mean, there's sort of, you know, problems are coming thick and fast. And we're going to need everybody to be passionate about maths and science going forward and, and articulate enough to be able to communicate, you know. I mean, normally I'd ask um, some great advice you were given or, or advice you'd give your younger self. But I think I think for me, maybe more importantly today, it's having expressed <laughs> so clearly what it is that needs to happen and, and related to what we know children want how do you get that across as a teacher or or a school within those confines of of, of of what you said because it seems to me that's that's the key because it's all very well saying it'll be great yeah. in 5 10 20 years when something's different yeah. but for your daughter or my daughter or your granddaughter or whatever who's in school now i think having that bit of advice and that kind of understanding is probably the most important thing yeah well i'd say three things i think i mean one having taught you know, always in tough schools, really. East London, South London, and Basildon. Where, by the way, the brightest children I ever met, you know, out there in Basildon, Essex, is a, just a hot, hotbed of intellectual capability and the opposite of its profile, you know. But I think my advice, number one thing would be trust the kids. Now, don't just ask them for their opinion. 
and don't say to them, oh, well, what do you think the punishment ought to be? Of course we have to have behaviour policies, of course. The kids need to buy into them as well and understand them. But you've got to trust them. And this, this isn't about co-construction. This is about learner-led. Uh, we, we built a classroom in, um, in Barcelona where we gave the kids no money. So there is a, just, just build tomorrow's classroom. These are primary kids. And they built it with cardboard. You know, they had a cardboard, huge cardboard interactive screen. You know, don't tell smart. Kind of break their hearts. But there it was, it was cardboard. And they stood at the screen and talked about what, what would be on it. If it was there, you know. Everything else was kind of make amend, and it was... But the thing was, the learning got better, and it got better for several reasons. I mean, one is, it was their classroom. Two, nobody cared about their opinion. What they cared about was their research. The job was, find out what works in other classrooms, think which of those things will work for you, they won't all work, and let's go with all that. But the children were role-playing future learning. And it turned out that, you know, my granddaughter's probably role-playing, I don't know, pirates or princesses or, or princess pirates probably at this point, you know. Kids role-play all the time. But it turned out the children role-playing future learning. It was a better experience than today's learning. And, you know, any which way we measured it, they arrived earlier, stayed later, performance went up, engagement was higher, subjectively it was good, objectively it was good flipping cardboard classroom, you know. And, by the way, we then got those kids into the university to redesign the university. So, you know, but this is co-construction taken to the level of standing back and letting them do the research and have a go. So, number one thing, trust the kids always. Number two, if I look back on my, you know, I've had a fabulous career and it's only just started. I'm planning to live forever and it's going okay so far. So. <laughs> So, you know, the next 30 years, dear God, you know. But if I look at all the projects we did, and, you know, we got the Guinness Book of Records or the biggest internet learning project in the world. I mean, all sorts of stuff. The projects that were good enough to keep up with the children were the ones that made me wake up in the middle of the night and panic. You know, I sat there thinking, oh, Stephen, what have you done, mate? You know, it's, you know, you're only as good as your last gig, and you've blown it this time. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh my lord, you know, twenty three million pounds of Tesco's money, and nothing's going to happen, you know, <laughs> or whatever. But those were the ones that were good enough, and I think I'd say loud and clear to teachers, parents, children listening to this: if you surprise children with the ambition of what you ask of them. They will astonish you right back with their response and how they do it. So, you know, just scare yourself, basically. Scare yourself with this and, and you won't regret a minute of it, really. In the end, the things that don't work are the underambitious things. The kids are bored, they're tracular, and they decide falling off the chair will be more fun than the project you've given them, you know. <laughs> and, and, and then you have to start dusting off your behaviour policy, necessarily so. You know, engage them. And the last thing I'll pass on from Stanley, who I mentioned earlier, you know, with his, um, you know, evacuated, you know, with his with his um, sister and then back to, you know, to, to meteorite rise in forwards because of his his resilience and his ingenuity. Not really creativity, but ingenuity. He said to me as he was doing his PhD, which took him a while, 
he said, he said, my, here's my top tip, Stephen. He said, never waste a decade. He said, you haven't got very many of them. And uh, he's absolutely spot on. You know, you can waste a year or two. doesn't really matter. And turns out the years you thought were wasted while you were working on a farm in Wales with your kid sister turned out to be incredibly valuable. But never waste a decade. I mean, you get to 20 or so, you've kind of graduated, finished your school or whatever. You ain't got many left before you're 70. So <laughs> don't waste a decade. Here I am at 70. Don't waste a decade. I will pass on as um, very, very sound advice. So those will be my three things for everybody, really. And they've all come from kids and learners and people of all generations. Well, what a fantastic way to finish. And I think the idea that everything comes from the kids means that we can only ever then expand as they're expanding. And that's just a fantastic way of um, of feeling like there's a great positivity, no matter like say what the confines or what school does or doesn't look like you know as as the adults and the grown-ups we can we can use all that data and do what we think but you know that combined idea of doing it is the most important thing if you look around the world 2.2 billion children in the world about half of them have a very poor education experience if any 30 30 million kids in Kashmir with no schools and so on of the half that have some sort of education experience about half of those have a have a bad experience, even though they get to secondary school, that's bullying or whatever, you know, they have a terrible experience. And of the half of the quarter that are left, we fail about half of them. So here we've got a system that takes 2.2 billion children and whittles it down to a very, very few successes. And historically, they were enough to solve the problems we needed. The world we've got now is all hands to the pumps. And a lot of those kids are never going to have teachers. So what's our obligation in the wealthy West, in stable England? You know, nobody's dropped a barrel bomb through the roof of my little school here on the Essex coast. Our obligation is to go early with showing how good learning can be so that others can follow without the funding or the largesse or the stability that we've enjoyed. You know, we have been blessed with opportunity, we need to use it to show how good learning can be so others can follow in our footsteps. That's absolute moral obligation. So, you know, I would le- I'd leave people, ministers will be here, happy to hear this, the less money we spend, the better it is usually. Um, we know that when we're on a tight budget, we have to make choices. And when the budget's really tight, the choices involve giving the kids agency, mixed age teaching, big kids, working with little kids, getting in the grandmas to help with reading, engaging the community. You know, the tighter the money, the more people have to pull their weight. That's what the world needs. So, you know, I know it's been tough time here, tough, tough, tough time. Teachers are exhausted, slightly crazy politicians insisting on all sorts of nonsense. But what we're doing here saving the world we're learning and that's a pretty good thought to end on isn't it really absolutely now I'm, i know you talked about so many different projects um and we've uh, literally scraped one millicule <laughs> of the surface of it all um so so just tell people where they can find out more about you and, and explore the work you've done and, and help with that yeah well i mean that stephen with a ph h-e-double-p-e-double-l google me you'll find tons of it's not so common names so it's easy to find me it's one or two other hebbles. Um, 
but also Heppel.net, the website. 20, I think 27 million people on there last year. So a huge number. But by the way, the average time on there for people who aren't robots is about 20 minutes. So I'm not clear whether that's because it's absorbing stuff or they're lost and can't get out, you know. But either, <laughs> either way, either way, I'll take it. It's a very sticky website. So go and browse around there. And by the way, I'm at Stephen Heppel on Twitter. And a lot of the people that follow me on there love all this kind of stuff. And they're all around the world. So if you want more of this kind of conversation, putting smaller sound bites, you know, <laughs> get stuck into Twitter as well. At Stephen Heppel. I mean, obviously, really, I've I was in everything early enough. I'm, I'm just Stephen Ebel in everything, you know. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And I, and I, and I love that final thought of, of it just being global because it is just learning and it is every child in every situation learning and f- learning for everybody because it's, the, it's a world sort of crisis that we're in it's also a world of it of sort of opportunities and skills and, and working together that's going to change it and make it better for everyone so yeah Stephen, thank you so much indeed my pleasure thanks everybody thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community with over 300 episodes i've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.